So this is a case that we both know pretty well. It's honestly a case that a lot of people know because it compromised a lot of the media at the time for reasons you will soon understand. In honor of Valentine's Day, we wanted to put out a special episode. And what better case to cover than the dating game killer? We are your hosts, Helen Allen and Sherry Ferreira. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. Let's begin by just giving a brief background on our killer, Rodney Alcala. I mean brief because I don't really just like, I just don't want to focus on this guy specifically. Um, He really is just like, such a narcissist. Um, Rodney was born on August 23rd, 1943 in Texas, and his family lived in Mexico for a while, and the father left them. Okay, like, boo-hoo, don't care. What happens next? Yeah, no, I know. Um, I don't mean to, like, make it sound like I'm being sympathetic, but just, like, trying to include all of the details that I know. But they end up moving to Los Angeles, and besides a father who wasn't present, Rodney led a very privileged upbringing and life. And he eventually joins the army in 1960. So throughout his time serving, though, there were a lot of allegations of sexual misconduct made against him. And Mm -hmm. it was noted that he went AWOL a lot. Like on multiple occasions, he just did not show up. Which like, isn't that actually a crime? Like for people who don't know, AWOL means basically just like disappearing from your duties. Yeah. So when you're in the military, that means you legally have to show up for your duty and When you don't show, you face the possibility of getting criminal charges, but Rodney didn't get any type of punishment for this. Which I have a huge problem with, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, so he was basically a flight risk the entire time until he had a nervous breakdown and was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And I think it's important to note that the prosecutor on Rodney's case did later say that while he was in the army, he had quote-unquote nightmarish urges that he refused to ignore i mean i know that they didn't actively know that he would end up being this like crazed serial killer but a person who is noticed to have quote-unquote nightmarish urges is like not someone that i'm really super comfortable with being trained to kill like just (laughs) my thoughts fully anyway The army does end up discharging him, but not for any behavior. It was basically just a medical discharge because of his nervous breakdown and his diagnosis. Yeah, so after leaving the military, he goes to UCLA for the School of Fine Arts to be a photography major. So he graduates, got his degree, yada yada. But while at school, he lived about a mile away from Chateau Mermont, a hotel where Tali Shapiro lived. Tali Shapiro is an eight-year-old girl with pretty notable parents in the Los Angeles community. She is known for being sweet and upbeat and just extremely loved by anyone who has ever really known her. One day when she was walking to school, she is approached by a man in a vehicle that she doesn't recognize. This honestly just scares me so much. Like, when the future when I am a parent, I'm fully going to be hovering over my child. Oh, yeah. My kids are never getting out of my sight. Like, it makes my skin crawl. Like, just the thought of an eight-year-old being approached by a man 
And he, like, told her that he knows her parents. And she even got a really bad feeling about it. But she was, like, always taught to respect her elders. And she just didn't really know to fear people. I mean, it was the 60s. So things are just so different then. Oh, totally. (laughs) Thankfully, a good Samaritan, and that's all we'll really get on the matter, unfortunately, because his name is never really disclosed, Um, But a good Samaritan saw her get into a car with a strange man and just didn't get a good feeling about it. So he calls the LAPD and he like follows the car to the home that they get out at. And it's Rodney's house. Yeah. And the officer shows up, knocks on the door and hears movement in the house. Rodney comes to the door basically naked and tells him he needs to get dressed. Hold on a second. But the officer is having none of it and tells him he has three seconds to put on his pants And after waiting, he kicks down the door to find Tolly laying down on the kitchen floor, bleeding out. Mm. The officer at this point thought she was dead. And when backup arrives, he makes the judgment call to focus on her and get her the medical attention that she needs. Because at this point, they just think she's dead. But we'll come to find out that she's actually still breathing. So another officer comes in because... The first responder calls in for backup, and while he is checking out the back door trying to find where Rodney went, the officer, still with Tolly, screams, and what he thought was a call for help was actually just him being grateful that Tolly is still alive. So the officer at the back door comes rushing in to, you know, give help and do anything he can for Tolly, and unfortunately that gives Rodney the ability to escape out the back door. Right. This is the part that, like, really gives me chills because I always consider, like, hindsight. Yeah, so hard not to. knowing about these cases. Right. And they were just, like, so close to getting this guy who would end up, like, terrorizing the nation. But obviously, like, the best thing that they could have done was tend to Tolly. And it reminds me so much of the Randall Woodfield case, our first case ever, of how the officer had to make a judgment call with Beth and... At the end of the day, it will always come down to saving the victim first. That's always priority. Yeah. Thankfully, Tali is rushed to the hospital and life-saving measures are undertaken. She is in a coma for about a month, but then miraculously clings on to life and comes out of it. The police also canvass the house um, and are able to come up with Rodney's ID. They find out that he is a student at UCLA, and they know his name and what he looks like at this point. Wait, and at this point, don't they also find, like, just dozens of photos of little boys and young women, too? Yeah, so they definitely, at this point, know now that they have a really dangerous man on their hands. Like, this isn't just a one-off incident. And they put him in on the FBI's top 10 most wanted, which essentially we find out is like a black and white piece of paper of people who like evaded capture. I don't, it's like not as big of a sentiment as it sounds. Yeah, it really doesn't mean that they have like all this compiled stacked evidence against whoever's on the list. It it just means that they got away, they're a fugitive and they just need to find them. That's pretty much it. So... Something that would literally never happen in 2021 happened. He is able to just pick up and move to New York under a new identification while literally being on the FBI's top 10 most wanted. And I mean, you do have to put this into perspective because it is well before 9-11. So the government really isn't like vetting people who are traveling like they do now. Right. And especially state by state, New York isn't communicating with L.A. because they're two completely different jurisdictions trying to figure out 
whose fugitives crossed where. So there really wasn't any way for them to find him. Right. So a few years pass now, and Rodney assumes the alias of John Berger and applies to NYU's School of Arts for Film, and he studies under Roman Polanski. And if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or I mean, if you're aware of him otherwise, yeah, um, you know why I think this is problematic. But anyway, that's another episode. Yeah, so keep in mind, this is during the 70s. Right. You know? And New York is a shit show. There is crime in every corner of the city. Oh, fully. The crime rate in New York is just like staggering. There's about 2,000 killings in 1971 alone. And this allows Rodney to fly under the radar and strike again. Cornelia Crilly was a beautiful and loved girl from an Irish family who grew up in Queens. And mind you, when we say that someone is beautiful, it's not just us being like, oh, so sad a beautiful girl was taken. Yeah, like, I fully acknowledge that it is problematic to only emphasize the deaths of people who are pretty or well-liked. But in this case specifically... Rodney is the type of killer who is into targeting people who fit his definition of beauty. I mean, yeah, like, think about it. This guy was a photographer. He's artsy, and he's going after what he deems is beautiful. So Cornelia definitely was targeted because of her looks. He fit what he wanted. Right. Absolutely. So I'm glad that you did make a point to say that because we will find that Rodney, like, doesn't only kill... Like, he does... I mean... Excuse me. We will find that Rodney does only kill women who society and him would deem beautiful. Like, he is just genuinely a creepy guy, but that is part of his shtick, that he is creepy. Yeah. Anyway, so Cornelia was dating this guy, Leon Borstein. They were a great couple, and he was very supportive of her next career move to become a flight attendant with TWA, which was considered, like, very prestigious. She got recently into an apartment um, in a spot called Girlville area. So cool. Which is, yeah, just like a fun thing to touch on. Girlville was this just cool area named after women who started to live alone in the 70s. Completely unheard of. And it was just this group of girls all being independent in New York. And Mm -hmm. it was just this really dope thing. I loved it. Really cool, yeah. Anyway, so one day her boyfriend, Leon, gets a call from her mother asking if Anyone has seen her because nobody can find her. So Leon goes to her apartment to check up on her, a building that anyone can get into without even a key, and he knocks on her door. He is kind of like panicked when there's no answer, so he just calls the police. Um, The police come, and they find that someone had broken into Cornelia's window and killed her. And unfortunately, the case does go cold because... Like we said, it's New York. They had been having so many murders at the time, and not to mention the city was being terrorized by the serial killer, son of Sam. So there really wasn't any resolution at this point. They didn't have any evidence. Right. And so Rodney is essentially just able to keep moving. Over the summer of 1971, while he was still in school, he got a gig as a camp counselor in New Hampshire at an arts camp. And like for those of you who are young and you know, went to camp, had cell phones. (laughs) Oh, God. I mean, picture the parent trap. Like, they're away at camp, no cell phones. Like, they really rely on snail mail to keep in touch with their families and, like, you know. Yeah, keep in contact, write letters, the the full thing. And so these two boys decide to go on their bikes down a dirt path and mail some letters out. They find this 
bulletin board in the post office with the FBI's top 10 most wanted. So they're like scanning it and lo and behold, they spot Mr. Berger, their camp counselor. And these guys are like so cool for doing what they do. I mean, they go and report it to another counselor who calls the FBI. And it kind of reminds me of that John Mulaney bit (laughs) where he's like, oh, what? Like if you saw Hitler walking on the street, would you kill him? And John Mulaney's like, I would never trust myself enough to know if that's Hitler. Like, not word for word. But he's essentially like, yeah, that's probably just a guy who looks like Hitler. Yeah. I'm not going to just ch- trust my judgment and potentially kill this man who just looks like Hitler. Of course. And so, I don't know. It kind of reminds me of that because, like, if I were a 12-year-old boy and I'm looking at this FBI's most wanted poster i would never in a million years be like no absolutely that's my camp counselor i'm looking at i would just be like that's the guy who looks like my camp counselor or or even just be like oh no this is some like joke like what a prankster i just fully would not have taken it to the like i just wouldn't think that i was right so i would have thought it was a funny coincidence same never would have taken it seriously but thank god these two boys do and steve holden from the fbi comes to pick up rodney flies him back to California where he is put on trial for what happened to Tali Shapiro. Tali's parents didn't want her to testify, which makes this case extremely difficult. This is not to say that I blame them at all because I totally understand not wanting to put your child through any more trauma. Like, I think I would have done the same thing in their shoes. Um, At this point, actually, they have relocated to Puerto Vallarta, where they felt that she would lead like a more safe and more peaceful upbringing away from the chaos. Right, right. So because it was really hard to try this case, um, because usually for cases like this, they do need a witness to like kind of like solidify it. He ends up being incarcerated only for a plea deal of child molestation, which sucks because honestly he should have gone down for the kidnapping battery assault etc and his sentence is indeterminate which means in this case it's looked at by the parole board yearly he is sentenced to one year to life and after 34 months he is released because of good behavior and here's the thing he is essentially a sociopath so it's simple for him to be whatever he wants and get out of jail it's sad to say but he was persuasive and just able to make anyone believe that he's rehabilitated and in the 70s they truly did believe in the power of rehabilitation within the prison system and you can tell that's so different from what it is today right so soon after this though he was caught smoking weed with a 13 year old girl on the cliffs of a beach and he is taken to prison again and in june of 1977 he is released yet again gets a different parole officer and he requests for a vacation and his parole officer is like yeah sure go ahead you do you and so he just goes back to new york coast to coast and he basically just goes around asking young boys and girls if he can take pictures of them and this is when he meets ellen hoover her friend says on the 2020 special that she had long dark hair long slender arms and legs and just carried herself like a dancer so She was apparently very trusting of other people, and she came from a Hollywood family and was just loved by many, so many. When she goes missing, there are literally flyers everywhere about how 
a quote-unquote socialite and quote-unquote New York heiress is missing. Like, it was a big thing. The police look into her being missing, and in her apartment, they find her calendar. On her calendar, it said that she had a meeting with this man, John Berger. And at this point, this is all they have. So then he's just able to go back to L.A. and become a typesetter at the time. So just to recap, he's been on the run for three years and has had two stints in jail. And he would literally bring in photos of nude girls to work and show his co-workers. And instead of everyone being in a panic thinking he is a pedophile, they just think, oh, he's artsy. It's a little weird, but nothing to get freaked out about. Yeah, right. They're like, it's the 70s. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> Five months after his return to L.A., the FBI finally connects John Berger to Rodney Alcala. You have to give them some grace for this because it was like pre-computer. So Rodney Alcala's doings would not really have otherwise been on New York's radar. Finally, though, the FBI questions him about Ellen Hover, the girl who um, was from New York and who is still considered missing at this point. Rodney doesn't admit to anything except... Quote, unquote, I vaguely remember dropping her off in Westchester and never saw her again. So he's really not giving the FBI anything to work with. A year later, her body is found in Rockefeller State Preserve, but it's all skeletal remains. So it kind of leaves no forensic evidence to lead to her killer. And that just seemed not it seems like it is the common problem is that they don't have anything really concrete to get him on Mm -hmm. and so at this point Rodney does begins to escalate and we aren't going to get into specifics because a lot of the falling deaths are just so gruesome but for the sake of understanding his movements and what he was doing it's important to note that he is changing in the sense that he is getting more confident he's getting flaunty and showy and he begins to stage and essentially well not essentially he poses his victims for the police or citizens to find and he even leaves one victim out in the open in an apartment building that she has no connection to it's drastically picking up and it's just getting more showy more flaunty than his previous victims so he is then interviewed in the case of the hillside strangler another notorious serial killer operating at this time Nothing really comes up on this front, but then he is later incarcerated soon after um, for the possession of drugs. But, you know, like before, he gets out for good behavior, and that's pretty much the end of that. In 1978, Rodney signs up for a primetime TV show called The Dating Game. Essentially, the premise of this show is there is like a female bachelorette asking questions behind a partition to three men that she's never met before. She is instructed to not ask personal questions like their name, age, income, or career, but she can ask them other things and they want it to lead to a date at the end of this. So this specific bachelorette is very fun and she's asking silly things like, she's like, if I were serving you, what food would you be? And no. I think that's a pretty good impression. No, it's it's dark. it's accurate. It's accurate as what it is. And the audience is just like eating it up. They love right. her. We'll have to put a link so that you guys can watch this too because it's just crazy. Oh, but. P- please go check it out and just see. There's Whenever you search up the dating game, this clip always comes up of that exact question. Mm-hmm. So... 
Her name is Cheryl Bradshaw, and she is just like the perfect character for the show. She makes voices. She's flirty with the guys, fun and enticing to the men. And she asks that freaky question about what food you would be. And Rodney, bachelor number one, responds, I'd be a banana. And he says some other weird thing like, peel me. Yeah, it, the, it's very phallic and disgusting. Uh, and the entire thing is just disturbing to watch, especially in hindsight. And honestly, like people there did get bad vibes from him. The uh, second bachelor that was sitting next to him behind the partition makes a point to say that he did think Rodney was a creep and immediately didn't like him. Apparently, like at one point, Rodney said, like, I always get my girl. And it was just like really off-putting to people. Gross. But Cheryl picks him anyway. And to each their own, you have to think that there was a partition between them. So she couldn't see him and get a full sense from him, get the full creepy vibe. She could just hear his voice and flirt back and forth. And it wasn't until after the show that Cheryl actually calls the casting director and says, I can't go out with this guy. There are weird vibes. He's strange and I'm uncomfortable. Right. And good for her. This is one of those times where... She probably looks back on it and is just so grateful that she listened to her gut. And after this rejection from Cheryl, he goes to Huntington Beach and encounters these two young women and tries to get them to come with him to take pictures. And they sort of also write him off thinking he's a little bit too much. We come to see that he uses this ruse often. If he's a photographer, he wants to take pictures of these girls to sort of lure them in and... This is also another time where people potentially save their lives by trusting their gut. Mm -hmm. So this day, it's so sad and just weird to say, but he was actively hunting for a victim. He was actively seeking them out. He was almost desperate in this sense. And so around 2.30 that afternoon, he goes to the beach and meets these two young girls, these other two young girls whose names are Robin Samso and her friend Bridget. And we do, we should note that there is a difference. Like the the first two girls that he met, they were young women. Like they were maybe teenagers or like young 20s. But the other girls, like this girl Robin and her friend Bridget, they are young girls, like 12. Yeah, so very scary. He's, ugh. He is immediately off-putting to Bridget though, and she's just not having it. And I think this was possible probably visibly clear how weird the encounter was because her mom actually approaches them and is like who are you and sort of confronts Rodney and he just runs books it mm-hmm. and at 4 30 that afternoon after Robin and Bridget had gone back to Bridget's house Robin realizes she is going to be late for ballet so she borrows Bridget's bike to ride to class and Bridget distinctly remembers urging her to not stop on her way there and to get there safely. Yeah. Unfortunately, Robin would never make it to ballet. Her brother calls Bridget frantically and is like wondering why she never showed up to class. And her mom waits about an hour and then calls police who file a missing persons report. Bridget is thankfully able to help compile a sketch of the man from the beach But unfortunately, a long 12 days pass and Robin's remains are found in a park. And at this point, it becomes clear that Rodney is the suspect in the sketch. And even the first couple of girls who had rejected his advances at Huntington Beach were able to come forward and place him at the scene. So this basically basically solidifies that he is the guy. Rodney is then arrested on the suspicion of Robin's murder. 
And while in prison, he's overheard talking to his sister saying, well, it's good that they don't know about the storage locker. And this breaks the case wide open. Right. This is like that beautiful defining moment. It's the mistake that breaks the camel's back. Like finally, all of the years and years of suspicions and close calls, they're just like tied up into this bow by his dumb lapse of judgment. And like, I mean, like who in their right mind doesn't know that they're being listened to while they're in prison? Like he has some nerve. (laughs) No. And it's so scary to think that they got him by overhearing this conversation. Like he Mm -hmm. is a complete idiot for not thinking that they would be listening. But I mean, what if they weren't just like by by chance? It's crazy because they didn't have anything concrete for him, but because they only arrested him on the suspicion, right? Yeah. And because those girls identified him as talking to Robin and just being a complete freak. So they would have just let him go if they couldn't find anything more incriminating to hold him on. Right. And like when we say this case broke open, like floodgates were opened yeah. up here. Hundreds of pictures <laughs> of young people, older people, all kinds of people in compromised positions and trophies on trophies. Like earrings, necklaces, all sorts of keepsakes that he learned to keep in the storage locker rather than his home after the Tali Shapiro thing. So they were, they also were able to specifically uncover the exact earrings that Robin was wearing the day she was taken from her bike. And what comes next is a whole bunch of legal matters, but I'm going to give you the gist of it as best as I can. He was Convicted twice and put on death row for Robin's murder, but they were both overturned until Matt Murphy gets assigned the case and puts in an order to reanalyze the evidence found in the storage locker for DNA evidence. So this is any trophy that he has. And this would mark the third time Rodney is being tried for his crimes. And at this point, I can only assume they are so eager to put this guy away and get enough evidence so that it won't get overturned again, and he is definitely put away for good. From the DNA they collected, the analysts were able to make three additional matches for other women that he was suspected of killing. During his trial in 2010, Rodney moves to represent himself in court. Narcissist. Big eye roll. Which means he gets to cross-examine the witnesses. So that unfortunately means Robin's poor mother, who has been through enough... Like, I can only imagine the pain that she went through having to relive her daughter's death through the words of her killer. It's, I mean, it's like just heartbreaking. No, it, it really is. It's devastating to think about a mother having to go through that. Now, in court, the jury at first convict him of murder in the first. But our guy, Matt, is like, no, we want to put this guy away for good. So he calls a survivor of Rodney's, Tali Shapiro. Yeah, so at this point, Tali is a lot older, and the jury is able to convict Rodney in a matter of two hours, and they decide on the death penalty. And in 2013, a 40-year-old cold case is finally solved. So the storage locker pictures have been released to the public, and a boy whose aunt he never met decides to go out on a limb and send the link to his mom. Her sister had been missing for 40 years, and she never stopped looking for answers. It's like, finally, they fell into her lap because she discovers a picture of her sister, Christine Thornton. Christine was on a trip with her boyfriend at the time. 
when a fight ensued and he left her on the side of the road and she was pregnant and alone. Ronnie took advantage of her vulnerability and I guess he spotted her. And the rest is hard to say what exactly happened, but he photographed her and killed her and her unborn child. When her sister and mother reported her missing, the police hadn't even taken it as a missing persons report because she was an adult and it kind of just appeared that she ran off after a breakup. So five years after she went missing, remains were found of a woman and an infant, but they were never connected to her until the storage locker pictures. And it's through the storage locker we uncover that Rodney, every time he was crossing the country, was doing so on a motorcycle. So he's countless times seen going from New York to California, California, New York. And he was just getting around on this motorcycle, which brings up the question, how many victims across the country could this man possibly have that we don't really know about, you know? There could be I know. hundreds of no, other victims. I was victims. thinking that too. Like, Christine was found in Wyoming, so they do interview him later on about that. Oh, so creepy. And when he's presented with the picture of her, he literally just, like, taps it and strokes her. And when they ask about the place that she was killed, he says, that was part of my area. Like, the, the wilderness? Yes. Like, what do you mean? No. I don't, your well, area? He is just being so vague and confusing. Like, is it a place he struck it in? Are there potentially more bodies in that area? And also how weird he said, my. Like, he feels some sort of weird ownership or pos- possessiveness over the, right, exactly. the grass. Like, if it were just one instant, I mean, he has killed so many people. So I feel like he wouldn't really consider that exact spot, like, his possessive area. Unless, like, there was some sort of pattern or, like, consistency there, you know? I mean, yeah, that would be my guess. So, anyways, instead of having him stand trial for Christine's murder in Wyoming, the police just left it as it is. They saw him in his cell in California, and they were just, like, they were good with it. Yeah. So, the detective that interviewed him, Jeff Shaman, said, The best place for Rodney Alcala is right where we left him. Seeing that jail cell and that setup that he's in, he's where he needs to be. And although the death penalty in California in 2019 was halted with a moratorium, we can find solace in the fact that, you know, he's not in a nice place right now. This obviously is a controversial topic, so I think it is worth, like, talking about all the different angles here. Yeah, and it's also worth noting that Wyoming does not have death row, so... Convicting him for Christine's murder wouldn't put him in the place to be executed, you know? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I know that Robin's mom, she was very for the death penalty in this case. Um, She even went as far as saying that she wishes she could be the one to administer the lethal injection. And I don't blame her. I mean, I could never imagine what she's going through. So I stand by her opinion and her feelings that she doesn't want her child's killer on the earth. But I also have to understand someone like Leon Borstein. Right. And if you remember, Leon Borstein was the boyfriend of Cornelia Crilly, the flight attendant from New York. And he spent the majority of his career as a prosecutor in Brooklyn, which I think it's nice to know that he dedicated his life to serving justice after the trauma he experienced. Mm -hmm. And Leon thinks that putting a stop to the death penalty might actually be a good thing. Right. 
So with the death penalty, you get so many appeals and so many chances to get out of your cell and do things that an incarcerated person, otherwise not on death row, is not able to do, like meet with lawyers and stuff. Um, This is a great opportunity for people who are wrongly convicted. Of course. But for someone like Rodney who gets off on attention, it's just feeding him. Fully. He loves having the spotlight on him. And Leon went on to tell the Times, and I quote, All it does is entertain him, and it doesn't do anything for us. He gets to fly out to New York, meet with his lawyers, sit in a courtroom for days on end. It certainly alleviates the boredom of sitting in a jail cell. Rodney Alcala is said to have between 8 and 130 victims. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at the Chalkline Pod and Twitter at the Chalkline Pod. And be sure to check out our website. The link is in our Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story.